Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. And uh, for Bonus Monday, I think this Bonus Monday, my guest is the great Troy LaRavier, president of the Chicago Principals Association, a progressive voice in the city of Chicago, a troublemaker, pain in the neck to Mayor Rahm, and a good friend of whatever radio show or talk show I've been on. He has been very good about showing up as a guest. So, Troy, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben, and greetings, everyone. All right, and uh, we had a little segment of a mic test that you may have heard already where Troy recites off the top of his head, and I, folks, I saw him do it. He did not have a piece of paper. He didn't have a phone. Tribe Call Quest was very good, very impressive. Every time someone asks me to do a mic check, I do that one because it starts off with him rapping about a mic check. <laughs> so it's uh, appropriate somehow. First of all, yeah. before we get started, congratulations. You were victorious. Uh, you were just uh, elected to your second term as president of the Chicago Principals Association. Thanks. Yes, sir. Second term. Three years. Three year terms. Uh, interestingly enough, our elections coincide with uh, CTU's elections. Mm-hmm. And my uh, re-election day was um, Lori Lightfoot's inauguration day. Oh, May. Uh, excuse me. Uh, 20th. Yeah, May 20th. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, and then the Chicago uh, Teachers Union uh, just had a uh, <laughs> just. I'm sorry, Troy. Troy showed me something that made me laugh. I'm sorry. <laughs> Lost my cool there. Uh, the Chicago Teachers Union also had an election, and their incumbent slate, uh, the core co- delegation, was victorious. A uh, good friend of the show, Stacey Davis-Gates and Jesse Sharkey, were victorious. Uh, and so, you know, it's interesting. I wasn't going to ask you this to start with, but that's how we go sometimes, Troy. Right. Uh, you and you, the reputation you had as a maverick, you were fired from your job for speaking out uh, about Mayor Rahm's educational policies, particularly his privatization policies. Uh, and uh, then you were elected president of the Chicago Principal Association, which is a pretty bold move by what had usually been a sort of a go-along group. Uh, the Chicago Teachers Union was a go-along group throughout the 90s until mm-hmm. Karen Lewis took control, and they became uh, an outspoken group, one of the few groups that, uh, in the city that would defy Mayor Rahm. Uh, I think Mayor Rahm, as he was heading out the door, was hoping that both the Chicago Teachers Union would uh, knock out the core Karen Lewis coalition that's leading it, and the Chicago Principals Association would knock out you. Oh, absolutely. And it didn't quite work that way. Uh, Instead, he got knocked out of Chicago. (laughs) Uh, You must take some delight in that, don't you? I mean, not, not really. I mean, we, in terms of him just leaving, I took delight when... And I don't know if I'd call it delight, but I was certainly happy to hear that he wasn't running again. I certainly knew it was because of a lot of the organizing that had been done. And interestingly enough, uh, I've never said this publicly. I um, had a conversation with someone. I can't mention the name. Um, But this person was telling me about a conversation she had with an Emmanuel staffer. Mm -hmm. And uh, my name came up. And then the staffer said, oh, him. The mayor hates him most. (laughs) 
<laughs> and like of all the people he hates, according to this staffer, I was the one he hated the most. And in a sense, you don't know how to feel about that. But in another sense, you know that that hatred or whatever it is that the, the word they used. I mean, maybe it wasn't actually hatred, but that's the word they chose. Mm-hmm. Uh, came from the consistent, unending uh, efforts on my part to expose his corruption, his ineptitude, um, and his incompetence. Uh, and it was good to know that you know it got through <laughs> in that sense. Um, but in terms of him on the way out, um, I mean, it was good to be reelected and it was good that the message there was not from him, but it was from the people who lead Chicago schools to say that this is the person, this person who has been a vocal critic, who has been a critic of the understaffing, of the efforts to the inequitable funding of our schools, the inadequate funding of our schools, the massive amounts of useless compliance, this person who has been the critic of the wasteful spending, this is the one we want to lead our association. Uh, I think that that's the message they sent, and that certainly gave me a uh, a sense of pride, I suppose. Yeah, and uh, with the Chicago Teachers Union, I think the message uh, was applauding their efforts to broaden uh, sort of the mission of a union and look beyond uh, just the the interests of the rank and file and talk about larger citywide issues. So in each case, it's sort of a new day uh, for these associations and these unions. Yeah, with them, and I think it's more than broadening it beyond the interests of the rank and file. When you build allies like that, eventually you, what you're doing is gaining support for your efforts. Mm-hmm to advocate for things that are in the interest of your rank and file by finding other people who also have those things as part of their interests. Uh, it's the thing that CTU seems to have understood. And in fact, I haven't talked much about it, but it's the way I approached, one of the ways that I approached leading the Principals Association, that ISBE coalition that brought ISBE down on CPS in terms of the Special edu- ed- the special education policies that were violating federal law. ISB, what's the act- Illinois Illinois uh, State Board of Education? Mm-hmm. So the Principals Association joined that coalition, and we by far brought the most comprehensive data to bear mm-hmm. in that coalition when they spoke to ISB. When we went down to Springfield, it was the principals. Everybody else in that coalition kind of had an anecdote. Mm-hmm. We were the ones who came with the comprehensive data about how those special ed policies were impacting our schools. But by ourselves, you know, we couldn't have done anything. With a coalition of, t- of that included CTU and parents and community advocates, we were far more powerful. By themselves, they had a lot of anecdotes, but without us, they didn't have the comprehensive data. And so, Again, you had all of these people who had the same interests, but by coming together, we were able to have much more of an impact than we would have alone. And I think CTU understands that, and we understand that. And I think both organizations are going to build on that in the years to come. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're at sort of a crossroads here in the city of Chicago. One mayor, Rahm, has left. The other mayor, Lori Lightfoot, is just coming in. And it's a good po- uh, point to ask you uh, your thoughts about uh, the legacy of Mayor Rahm in relation to the schools and your expectations, your hopes for the new mayor, Lori Lightfoot. So let's start uh, with Mayor Rahm uh, and his legacy with the Chicago Public Schools. Uh, your general thoughts. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, looting and pillaging. That's his legacy. He looted and pillaged the Chicago public school systems system on behalf of the people who funded his campaign. He looted our school system on behalf of the banks through taking out these insane, irresponsible loans that we now have to pay back using money that will not go toward our classroom, that should have gone toward our classrooms, but will be going toward his buddies in the banking industry. Looted and pillaged our school system on behalf of the Aramark and Sodexo corporations that have left our schools filthy. So the looting, the pillaging, and the incompetence, just incompetent education policy. Um, you know, you know, We just did a survey at the Principals Association of um, issues we had our principals and assistant principals, they're also a part of our association, rank the most important things for us to deal with. Number one was um, understaffing. We are critically understaffed at CPS. We are the most understaffed school system in the state of Illinois. That's his legacy. When I say looting and pillaging, there's an actual thing you can look to to see that it's been looted and pillaged. It was not the most understaffed school system in the state of Illinois before he got here. He did that. We are ranked 861st out of 861 school districts in the state of Illinois in the ratio of students to certified staff. The top 20 districts in the state. If they have 500 kids, they have 100 staff, a five to one ratio. The average school district in the state, if they have 500 kids, they have 50 staff. Right? A 10 to 1 ratio. In Chicago public schools, those same 500 kids have just 29 staff members. So that's 21 fewer, that's 71 fewer than the top Illinois schools. Mm -hmm. 21 fewer than the average Illinois school. That's what we're working with because we have been looted and pillaged by the Emanuel administration so that he can take the resources that were being spent on those people mm -hmm. and spend them on Aramark, spend them on Sodexo, spend them on Soups, spend them on Northern Trust, the Pritzker Group, and the rest of the banks that they've taken these toxic loans out. Mm -hmm. Soups, of course, being the, um, uh, the contract that went to a consulting firm to educate, I find this beyond <laughs> irony, to set up a series of of uh, seminars that principals are required. This is when I first met you, Troy, right. uh, around that time. Uh, you were uh, outspoken in, about how ridiculous a waste of time these uh, consulting uh, seminars were. Right. were. And then it turned out that the, the deal uh, was an inside deal where the uh, CEO appointed by Ron, Barbara Bird Bennett, um, was uh, getting kickbacks to get those contracts to Supes, S-U-P-E-S. This happened on Rom's watch. Right. Looting, pillaging, <laughs> corruption, and incompetence. Uh, that is his legacy. All right. So when you see Mayor Rahm, and I'm not good, speaking for myself here, but it is your thoughts on this one. When you see Mayor Rahm going and writing these essays uh, for Atlantic, Ruri, he talks about you know what people should do for to deal with all kinds of issues of the day, including education. You know, as though he were the model that we should be emulating. Uh, what's your reaction to that? I think that's another part of his legacy, too, that, I mean, he was very good at, you know, putting pigs in dresses. Um, he was very good at taking the most toxic policies that were having uh, horrible impacts on people all around the city and trying to dress them up as some kind of success story. Uh, and all it takes is just 
a watchful eye, uh, some research, not much, <laughs> um, to see the real impact. Um, and so that's a part of his legacy. You know, his, he, he's a spin artist. Um, you know, ever since he started writing for The Atlantic, when he wrote that first one, I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, you need to write a rebuttal. <laughs> I can't remember which was the, do you remember the first one? Something about, oh God, some lessons he's learned. <laughs> um, about principle and oh, principle and I thought he when I read that right. one. Yeah, um, no, the whole strike. No, it was a lessons he were where school reformers were wrong. Right. Okay, yeah, <laughs> and without him yeah. actually saying anything was wrong, it's just these other lessons that he supposedly. Yeah, learned. no, I remember that one. And then we, uh, we need to empower principles. Yeah, and uh, empower like uh, that right there. Empower principles, right? Okay, sounds great. But when you look at actually what he what he's actually done. We're in the most understaffed school districts in the state. Like, you have just narrowed our options to the point where we have been disempowered. I can't hire who I want to hire every because every year, you know, empowerment means hey, let me because he talks about letting us hire who we want to hire. Yeah. But you've made us the most understaffed school district in the state, and so every year we're not faced with new people to hire. We're faced with who we have to let go. Mm-hmm. Right. Principal just left, uh, and I won't say the name because I don't know if she, but just left the district in a high-performing school because she got sick of every year trying to figure out who she was going to cut, and she's out. That's not empowerment. One of the results of our survey, the third most important thing for principals was compliance, redundant compliance. They're sick of it, but Rom has created a bureaucracy full of incompetent people who want principals to do their job for them. So we're always sending them forms and crap for them to fill out. And they're sick of it. Like they have to fill out the same information in 10 different forms instead of being instructional leaders for their schools. So once again, you have disempowered them with your with the incompetent bureaucracy that you've created in CPS. I could go on and on, but Every word that comes out of the man's mouth, the actual <laughs> impact of his policies yeah. is the complete opposite. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's his legacy. No, competence, uh, looting, and pillaging, and spent. Okay, I'm, I'm I'm waiting for that article to be up here in the Atlantic anytime, uh, any I'm, day now. I may write it one one of these days. No, I do remember that article where he essentially says the uh, he he's dragged out that teacher strike of 2012 a few extra days so that he could force the Chicago Teachers Union, this was what I'm essentially paraphrasing, uh, to give in and drop some uh, provisions in its contract so that principals would have more authority, more empowerment. And as I read that, I'm like, oh, that's what it was all about, looking out for principals. And then I thought about you getting fired for uh, daring uh, to uh, speak up on behalf of principles. All right, now, uh, so that's Rom's legacy. What are you looking forward to uh, with Lori Lightfoot? I mean, jury's still out. I've spoken to her a couple of times. Um, you know, with Rom, for example, Janice Jackson and Forrest Claypool kept me at an arm, kept the Principals Association, the elected representative of principals at an arm's length. Uh, those are the two superintendents under Rory, the, the Janice Jackson and... The- um, you know, they didn't want us at their table, so we had to go and create tables and, fo- and compel, them, compel them to sit down. Mm-hmm. So we went to ISBE to create a table and compel them to sit there. We went to the state leg- legislature to create a table and compel them to sit there. We went to court to sue on behalf of Principal Dues Process Right, compelled CPS to sit at the table. 
and we won on each and every one of these things. That would have been nice to just, oh, let's, let's, let's sit down and we can talk about these things without having to go through all this stuff. We could save you a lot of you know, headaches. So I talked to Lori about that and she said, absolutely, we want principals at the table. You are the elected representatives of the people who lead our schools. Your voices must be heard. And so that's, that's a good statement. But, you know, the jury's still out on whether or not, you know, the, the CPS under her leadership is going to follow through on that. Ha, so I has, don't have anything positive or negative to say at this point. Has uh, Janice Jackson, who's the head of the CPS under ROM, and will continue, apparently, I just read that in the paper, She, uh, Lori Lightfoot will continue uh, having her as leading the CPS. Has she reached out to you since Lori's election? No, she has not. Now, to, in Lori's... You know, I'm, and I'm I'm going out of my way to do something very untroy like, okay, <laughs> which that which has not really been a part of my history, which is to give folks the benefit of the doubt. And yeah. so we just had an election, and uh-huh. so when they were not reaching out as they said they would, I assume that you know they're waiting to see who wins the election. If I were them, I would do that. It's mm-hmm. a smart move. Yeah. So now our election is over. Mm-hmm. You know, we have prevailed. And so we'll see if my giving them the benefit of the doubt was justified um, or if there's something else going on here. Okay. Well, uh, just for the record, as we speak, it's Friday. The election was Monday. So that's one, two, three, four days uh, later. So, you know, uh, everybody's busy. Uh, we'll see, uh, you know, where we go yeah, with that. And I'm certainly, and I've certainly reached out to both Lori and um, the guy who she connected with me with, with and her transition team, Manny. Since the election, okay. Uh, so I've done my part. I'll also reach out um, to see the board, to the CEO of CPS, and certainly do my part, uh, just as I did when I was first elected. And we'll see if they do theirs. All right. One of the great uh, issues of the last five years that I sort of associate with your uh, presence as a, a voice in Chicago is the, the the push for an elected school board, and a lot of that was driven by a sense uh, of frustration on the part of parents that they weren't listen, being listened to by Mayor Rahm's administration or the appointees that Mayor Rahm put on the board that in fact they were just being willfully ignored, right. uh, mocked and uh, condescended to, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, that school, it seems as though the elected school board uh, momentum has sort of stopped a bit with Lori being uh, elected mayor. She's she has her uh, reservations about the current bill that's advancing through the General Assembly in Springfield. And then it was just announced, I think it was either yesterday or today, that the entire board uh, that Mayor Rahm, all the appointees that Mayor Rahm put on the school board are stepping down, giving Lori Lightfoot the opportunity to put her slate in. So what's your general thoughts about where we are right now with the uh, school board? So people associate me with the elected school board conversation, and I have no idea why. I have never been at the forefront of that movement. I've always been moderately supportive of it with reservations. Um, and those reservations being that the, the it depends on how you construct it, right? We have an elected city council right now, right? And we see what that got us, right? Like uh, basically a bunch of rubber stamps for the outgoing mayor Mm -hmm. that in their part it's how are they elected right is there uh, public funding and financing of elections that will allow regular folks like you like me like a parent 
to run for the office? Mm-hmm. Or are we still going to have the same system that gives a tremendous advantage to people who are backed by corporations or charter school? I mean, if we had an elected school board election right now, the charter schools would put millions mm-hmm. into it. And we might get a board that's worse than the one that just left. And so I'm for an elected board if we put in things that increase the likelihood that the board will actually be representative and competent. Um, and I haven't seen things in the bill that would increase that likelihood. And so I have my reservations. Um, so I'll, that's that's pretty much how I feel about the election of the board. In terms of the board stepping down, I mean, that wasn't a surprise at all. I mean, it's a new mayor. She gets to put in a new board. And again, the jury's still out. I haven't seen who she's putting in, and I haven't seen the kinds of decisions they're going to make Mm-hmm. Once they get in, I am trying my best to reserve judgment. <laughs> well, actually, uh, the the attitude embedded in the comment you made, I think, is what is what reflects what's wrong with our system. Think about this: school board appointees are not uh, supposed to serve at the whim of the mayor. They have terms that they are assigned, and so right. if those terms overlap with one mayoral, it's like the Federal Reserve Board, you know what I'm saying? Uh, you, uh, you, the, the, the principle is that you have some continuity. So presumably these people have been uh, overseeing uh, board matters, school matters for the last, I don't know, four years or so. Uh, they should continue doing that. There's embedded in that is the notion that there's a, a little bit of independence between the school board and the mayor, between the person who appointed them to the position uh, and uh, the system that they oversee. But I, I think most people in Chicago would see it exactly the way you do it. Well, they're creatures of the mayor, so they when he leaves, they should step down and allow the new mayor to put her puppets in. And I think that's Absolutely, what's wrong? No, I'm not saying they should. I'm saying I'm not surprised by it. Yeah, I hear. <laughs> right, okay. I'm not saying that's the way it should go, yeah. Ben. Yeah, I'm saying, yeah. duh, this is the system we're working yeah. in right now. Um, but I think there's a little point you made in terms of the the mayor's puppets. Like, and we have to that like the old school board weren't they weren't the mayors. They weren't exactly the mayor's puppets. They were the puppets of the people who fund the mayor. They were the puppets of the banks, the puppets of the charters. And and so that's what we have to get to, to create a system where they need, where they are no longer the puppets of the charter, where they're no longer the puppets of the people who can put the most money in their campaign fund. It won't matter if they're elected or appointed by the mayor if the people behind the mayor ultimately have the most power in saying who's going to get elected by putting the most money up in a campaign fund. That's what I want to wake people up to in relationship to this appointed versus um, elected school board. They're either going to be, because right now the system says you'll be appointed by a mayor who's financed by these toxic interests or their campaigns will be financed by those same toxic interests directly and which will increase their likelihood of winning in this current system that doesn't have a public financing option or the other piece where it's um I forgot the term they use, but it's kind of like proportional representation but not quite mm-hmm. where rank choice voting rank choice rank choice voting, voting. Yeah. Uh, Those are things I would support that would have a hell of a lot better impact on the school board than just making it elected. One one name that uh, the Sun-Times threw out as a possibility uh, to be appointed 
uh, by uh, Mayor Lightfoot to the school board, and this one caught me off guard, it was Karen Lewis, the former president of the Chicago Teachers Union, who, of course, has been the, was the great symbol of struggle against Mayor Rahm. Uh, I don't think of any one particular person in that from that first term who uh, better symbolized the fight, uh, personified the fight against Mayor Rahm than Karen Lewis. Troy, I will have seen it all. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I always say I've seen it all in the city of Chicago, having uh, spent all these years uh, following politics. But I don't. Can you imagine a world in which Karen Lewis is appointed uh, to the Board of Education? If that world is based on an underlying logic, like so, part of the uh, my underlying logic for the school board is that it should represent diverse interests. Mm-hmm. And we always talk about this conflict of interest thing. Like everyone has some kind of interest. What you have to do is balance them. And so I think there should be people on that school board that represent the interests of teachers. I think there should be people on that school board who represent the interests of parents and students. I think there should be people on the school board who represent the interests of principals. And neither of them should have a dominating or controlling interest, but they all should have to work together and compromise. Mm -hmm. And so in that kind of world, if teachers decide that a Karen Lewis or whomever is the one if people decide that that should be the one who represents us, then it makes perfect sense. All right. Now, let's broaden the, the, the conversation a little bit, uh, Troy. Uh, folks who've been listening to Troy in the, on my shows over the years know that uh, in addition to being a uh, uh, principal here in the city of Chicago, in addition to being a, 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 a spokesperson for progressive attitudes uh, in terms of local education, he is also uh, a Bernie Sanders supporter. He was a Bernie Sanders delegate in 2016. So I know you must have some thoughts and some views about what's going on nationally. And I forced him to read an article or two, which he'd already read anyway, about uh, my favorite topic of the moment, uh, Donald Trump's bailout, a bizarre $16 billion bailout. But before we get to that, Donald Trump, we'll have that as the capper. Um, general thoughts on the, the Democratic presidential race and uh, the candidates, the ideas they're articulating uh, as we head into really with the beginning will probably be in June, you know, in, in all intents and purposes, uh, June of uh, 2019. What's your general thoughts? So, as you said, I was a big Bernie supporter and I will likely be a big Bernie supporter again. Um, but I want to make sure I pay attention and hear everybody out. And I haven't been doing that. I've been very focused on my own reelection. Um, that said, I mean, Bernie said the I mean, he raised the bar for what progressive a progressive Democrat should be. And you can see him impact. You can see the impact on that uh, from what I have paid attention to in terms of what people are debating with Elizabeth Warren saying things I've never heard Elizabeth Warren <laughs> say before, say before, uh, in terms of progressive um, uh, policies. Um, and so I want to uh, take a d- bit of time to actually make sure that my decision is an informed one, but I can't see me um, doing anything right now other than supporting Bernie, but I want to make sure that once I do, I'm able to say this is why, and I'm not able to say that now in relationship to why him and not this person or that person. All right, well, there's two general uh, uh, topics and that uh, the Democrats, National Democrats, are sort of struggling with right now. Love to get your thoughts. And number one is health care. Number two is impeachment. We'll take health care first. Um, it, until Bernie Sanders raised the issue of Medicare for all, the Democratic Party 
by and large, the National Democratic Party was ignoring this issue on the uh, with the idea that it was too controversial, and they went more with the Obama approach, the Obamacare approach, which mm-hmm. kept the uh, insurance industry very much involved. The Mitt Romney approach. The Mitt Romney. Thank you. <laughs> when he was governor of the state of Massachusetts, <laughs> that's who that approach is. Which is bizarre because he even he could, then he criticized, <laughs> criticized. That's how insane the Republican Party is uh, at this moment. And now. Uh, Many of the Democratic candidates are uh, singing the praise of health care. Uh, do you think that the Democrats should uh, stand up as a national party for, for the once in, its, in their life and declare their support for a, um, uh, a national health care as we head into this presidential election so the folks know exactly where they stand on this? So, I mean, the quick answer is yes, but the, the more detailed and nuanced answer is we're talking about the Democratic Party like it's one thing and that it's not subject to the same forces that the school board is subject to, right? That there are for people behind the mayor and the people behind the school board. There are also people behind the Democratic Party who fund them, who fund the different candidates. And unfortunately, a majority of them are taking a lot of money from interests that don't want to see national health care a national health care plan. And so you're not going to see that from the Democratic Party until that dynamic changes. Um, and so that's my initial answer to that. Um, that there are forces behind that party that are going to make that impossible to, at this point, unless, of course, there is a popular uprising, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, and Bernie damn near created that. I mean, his campaign gave people who who had been quiet because they believed it was, you know, like this far out idea. Mm-hmm. They had been convinced into believing that it was this margins idea that wouldn't get any respect. When he began, it's almost like the reverse of what Donald Trump did to racists, right? They were in the shadows and in the corners, but when he came out, he gave them something to legitimize this sick, um, biased ideas. Right, and so now they're at what Bernie did was the exact opposite. People had this wonderful idea that people thought would get ridiculed, ridiculed, and you know there was no national, there was nothing to sort of put the uh, collective energy of millions of people who believe this thing, but felt like they were alone until Bernie Sanders' campaign uh, came across. So if if we build on that and create a campaign that goes beyond you know, just one person's uh, presidential election, but create a campaign that legitimizes it even more, then the forces behind the insurance industry may not have any choice but to accept it if it becomes that popular. Um, We're not, we haven't reached that moment yet, though. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it does. And there's going to be tremendous resistance if we ever push it. Uh, And I think there's a general reluctance on the part of many uh, Democrats, and this gets into the impeachment question, would love to hear your thoughts on that, Many Democrats are very cautious about conflict and uh, highly publicized, contentious conflict in which uh, what are considered extreme points of view, in this case, extreme like socialistic or progressive points of view, dominate and are unafraid and unabashed about declaring what they think are principles that that the country should follow in this case health care for all mm-hmm. if and so it you know that democrats get no that could turn people off that could turn swing voters off we shouldn't go too far we got to win this election you gotta you know uh, crawl before you walk we never get sort of get out of the crawling stage if you follow what i'm saying troy so that 
that's what I think the Democrats struggle with. And it doesn't seem like you are too concerned about uh, whether you alienate some swing voters in the states here or there. Um, No. Um, I think there are two things at play there. One is the one I've already talked about. Like, I don't, part of it is I don't think they're concerned about alienating anybody. I think that's just a talking point to justify what they don't want to do. That's part one. Part two is for those that, for whom that is a legitimate point, who are concerned, like we have to look at the reverse on the Republican side. Like, I, you know, I came of age in Bill Clinton days <laughs> where they tried to impeach this. They made a national scandal out of a man. You know, I, I don't even know how to say it. Mm-hmm. It's a podcast. <laughs> right. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> about, right. About a man getting head. Right. Yeah. And you know, impeachment scandal, an impeachment proceedings based on whether or not he told the truth to Congress about that. Um, and now we're talking about a man who, who is basically borderline committed treasonous acts against this country. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. But number two, but the bigger piece behind that is that the Republican Party and the interests behind them, it's the big point, had a machine, a conflict machine going, a messaging machine in which conflict was a huge part, and they still have it going, where they're going to attack every single damn thing a Democrat does. They are, I mean, it, they are going to give you conflict fatigue. Um, it is relentless, it is never ending, and mm. it helps them. Yeah. They, it has helped them more than it has hurt them. Mm. Democrats don't have a messaging machine uh, that is built anything like the messaging machine the people behind the Republican Party have, the conservatives have. Don't have anything like that. And as a result, also don't have that accompanying sort of conflict generation machine that goes with it, right? For the Republican Party, it's a way of life. It's not something to, it's a way of life. It's, it's a part of the strategy for dominance. Democrats don't even have this. They, they can't even see it for the potential that it has because it's just not it. Because they, they don't even have the messaging machine, let alone the the sense of how conflict can aid in such a machine. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you were Congressman uh, Troy LaRavier, would you be pushing for impeachment right now? Oh hell yeah! <laughs> All right, but not just pushing for impeachment. Yeah. See, again, yeah. with the Republicans, they didn't just push for impeachment. Yeah, yeah, right. They were pushing the ideas that went along that you were dishonest. That like, yeah. there's a messaging. Impeachment is a vehicle to carry a message to the American people. Right. So you don't just push for impeachment. You push the idea that this man is a traitor to your country along with the impeachment. It is a vehicle through which to transform and get those swing voters on your side mm-hmm. if you do it right. Yeah. But, but they don't even they, they don't even have the concept of that the way the Republicans. do. Yeah, some do. But you're right. It's it's uh, again. Democrats are just so used. And yeah, I hear this in the rhetoric of Biden. Oh, we can get along. <laughs> it's been a bipartisan situation in Washington since the 80s, okay? Or even, I don't even know if it existed then. I guess it kind of did. And I don't know if it's, again, I don't know if it's the Republicans who get it as much as the people and the institutions and the think tanks that fund the ideas that they then all repeat. It's like, it's like they're synchronized, man. Yeah. 
There are institutions behind them that do this, and Democrats don't have those institutions. All right, now we're going to get to the issue of it. We're looking for someone all day to talk to about it, and I'm forcing Troy to talk to me about it. All right. Uh, And uh, now uh, let's set it up by saying this. Troy LaRavier has been an employee of the Chicago Public School System. I want to say going back to like 2012 or something like that. 1997. Wow. Okay, I forgot a few years. I had a six-year break, though. Okay, six-year break. All right, so uh, then you know how difficult it is to find money to fund public education in a big city like Chicago, which has a lot of black people, a lot of black kids, a lot of Hispanic kids. There's not a lot of, uh, when it comes to finding money to educate kids who are not wealthy, uh, suddenly it's uh, it's always we gotta we can't uh, overspend. We have to prudent be prudent about how we uh, finance things. We can't overtax the people of the city of Chicago. Uh, we have to be financially solvent, etc. and so forth. Today I wake up, I see on the front page of the newspaper, Troy Laravier, farmers stung by trade strife get sixteen billion dollars. Sixteen billion dollars, Troy. President Trump somewhere found sixteen billion. I guess it was underneath the Lincoln bedroom bed or something. Please explain to me how overnight the feds can find $16 billion to pay off farmers not to produce uh, goods as part of the president's trade war with China, and yet we can't find money to finance Chicago public schools. So this is a very complex issue, and I have a very simple conclusion to it, but let me lead up to that conclusion, if you'll give me about two minutes. So one, there's the issue of subsidies to farmers. And then there's this subsidy in particular. Regular subsidies, I'm on the fence about. But this subsidy, I'm absolutely opposed to. uh, Because it's one that was created through a manufactured crisis and not through the regular needs that normal subsidies are created through. Um, Two, that manufactured crisis is a crisis of a trade war created by a president through his protectionist attitude. And for those, you know, protectionism is basically, it It, it, it was a, it, it sounded like a good idea maybe a hundred years ago and it's been proven like it, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Where you tax the products that come into your country from other mm-hmm. countries um, so that to make them more expensive, to make your people more likely to buy products that are produced inside your country. Mm-hmm. Sounds like maybe a decent idea, but it's been proven to be wrong for several reasons, and I only go into one of them here because it's the one that matters, which is the reason one of the reason here that it's not a good idea is because when you tax the imports or the exports of other countries, they will tend to retaliate and then tax your exports, mm-hmm. right? And so we've taxed the the manufacturing goods that China sends to the United States, and China says, okay, well we'll tax the agricultural goods that America sends to us, which means it hikes the price of the soybeans or corn or whatever our farmers try to sell to China, which means they can't sell their products anymore and they're about to be to go into ruin because of President Trump's um, tariffs, because of the trade war that he has created. And so now President Trump has these farmers who are about to get really pissed at him. Mm-hmm. And he knows that farmers are a huge part of his electoral base. They support him. Uh, he can't have angry farmers. It will really hurt his already dim reelection chances. <laughs> and so what does he do? He gives them 16 billion of your tax dollars 
to shut them up. What that is, what just happened is basically the, the American people through our tax dollars and through this president have just made a $16 billion contribution to Donald Trump's reelection fund. That's what this is. And we are paying the price. And uh, he's going to get away with it. Do you think? He just got away with it. (laughs) I mean, he gets away with damn near everything. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I, I, uh, that was a very, uh, it was a very skillful, uh, summation of things, Troy. I'm going to steal all your ideas and put them in the reader. <laughs> pretend like I came up with them, and no one will know that I stole them from Troy Laravie because that was really well done. Thank I won't say anything. Yeah, no one. Shh, no I one won't. Yeah. You know? Well, maybe I will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, those are my. But you're absolutely right. It's just a point blank. Uh, uh, bailout of Donald Trump's re-election campaign, subsidizing his re-election campaign through tax dollars. And what really irritates me to know, uh, and uh, Troy, is that many of the state legislatures, uh, leg- legislators who are Republicans, will denounce and fight like hell against uh, Pritzker's fair tax proposal, will be the first ones to su- sign on uh, to Donald Trump's uh, insane $16 billion handout to farmers to essentially subsidize them for not producing goods and, and sending into a market. All the people who extol fair markets and free markets will be the first people to say this is a good idea to spend all this money to essentially create a captive market, mm-hmm. to do the exact opposite of what they supposedly say. They believe in nothing, Troy. Do you hear what I, I mean? I, I just you, And uh, <laughs> I just, I hadn't thought about it until you said that, that it's essentially a... Uh, uh, it's a subsidy to Donald Trump's own um, re-election campaign. Now, when you say those things and you take these stands, do you sometimes think, you know what, I should be looking out for the principles and the principles alone. Do you ever think that uh, it, you're, you've crossed the line and you should only talk about school issues? And so, I mean, you made the connection with that one because that $16 billion could be spent for something else. And that's $16 billion. It was like when, when Martin Luther King articulated this so well when people were like, you need to stick to civil rights when he came out against Vietnam. And he's like, the money means that several billion dollars a day being spent in Vietnam is going to ensure that our anti-poverty efforts get thrown to the wayside and defunded because that's where that money's coming from. Like, there are choices being made here. You know, these decisions that are being made have an impact on things that seemingly are unrelated to them because the money being spent for them could be used toward the um, great society mm-hmm. programs that we like to see enacted. And I see the same thing here. Uh, you said, like, uh, what did you said? Uh, that $16 billion could mm-hmm. put every single person in Chicago to work for several years. Yeah. And we're just gonna hand it out to farmers. Not just hand it to farmers, but hand it to farmers as a result of a manufactured crisis, yes. right? And the you mentioned the Republicans, like they're against the trade war. The Republicans are against, have said they're against the trade war, you know, because they they can't. I mean, they're free traders. Yeah. I mean, they are free, so they can't come out in support of it, but they will come out in support of this 
hand out to farmers that is a result of the trade war they don't support. Yeah, and it's the exact opposite of free trade, by the way. (laughs) I mean, it's the exact opposite of free trade. Uh, So it's interesting. Betsy DeVos said, there's no free lunch. She was testifying to the education secretary when it came to uh, to Bernie's proposal to finance college education for all. Bernie uh, Bernie Sanders should know there's no free lunch. I'm waiting for Betsy DeVos to speak out against Donald Trump's $16 billion uh, handout to farmers in the grounds. There's no free lunch. Anyway, we're going to leave it there. Troy LaRavier, and I guess your uh, members of the Principal Association must have no problem with you speaking out on national and international issues the way you do, because they just reelected you. Well, right. well uh, most of them don't. Well, yeah, most of the other <laughs> can't get everything. Uh, 33% or whatever uh, didn't see it that way. Troy, thanks so much for stopping by, and uh, we'd like to keep coming in here at least once a month. Absolutely. All right, very good. That's Troy LaRavier. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.